You're listening to Forecast, the marketing podcast for professional services leaders. If you're looking to generate more leads, win more deals, and take your firm to the next level, this show is your shortcut. Hey there, folks. Welcome back to the show. Amazing guest for you today and Blair Ends. Blair is the founder of a sales training company for creative firms called Win Without Pitching. He's also the author of a fantastic book called Pricing Creativity, a guide to profit beyond the billable hour, which I think is fair to say is the only book on pricing of its kind. Blair is also, by the way, the co-host of a great podcast called Two Bobs, alongside our previous guest on the show, David C. Baker. So if you like hearing a couple of whip-smart, grizzled veterans talk about running an expert service business, you're going to want to check out that show. It's quickly become one of my absolute favorites. Now, in today's episode, Blair is going to share with us the six rules of pricing. Now, here's what I love about these rules. This is not some idealistic, academic, ivory tower pricing theory. These are real-world, battle-tested rules of pricing that Blair has developed from his experience actually selling consulting engagements. And that's what's most fascinating to me about Blair's work, is that Blair's a sales guy. He's a business development guy. He's a practitioner. So you can trust that whatever Blair tells you to do has not only worked for him, but it's also worked for his clients who have tried these ideas and these tactics and these rules in real-world sales environments. So lots to learn here from Blair Ends. Show notes to this episode are going to be at forecast.fm slash Blair. That's forecast.fm slash B-L-A-I-R. Now, before I let you go, if you're somebody who's doing quite well, but you know you could be doing better, you've got clients, they're happy with your work, and they're getting great results, but you want more clients, or you want better clients, or you want to raise your fees and charge what you're really, truly worth, or you're just tired of being the industry's best-kept secret, then I've got something you're going to want to check out. It's an on-demand webinar training that's 100% free of charge called The Five Shifts to Double Your Firm. I found that there are five things that separate the consultants and the professional service providers who are growing fast, working with amazing clients and charging premium fees from the ones who are stuck working with average clients, charging average fees and doing average work. So if you want to know what those five shifts are and how you can apply them to your business and hear stories of my clients who have made these five shifts and are experiencing tremendous growth in their businesses as a result, grab the free training by heading over to doubleyourfirm.com. That's doubleyourfirm.com. Dot com. That is enough out of me for now. Here's my conversation with Blair Ends. Mr. Blair Ends, thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, it's my pleasure, Ahmad. Happy to be here. It's it's a real honor to have you on the show. We were speaking earlier. I had David Baker on the show just before you, and now I've got the uh, the tag team uh, from the Two Bobs podcast, which is excellent. You, you've had the second Bob, and now you have <laughs> Bob number one. <laughs> now that we're the on the topic, liner, yeah. I don't even know if I know the story. Why Two Bobs? Uh, it's an inside joke. In fact, it was almost going to be called Between Two Bobs, which would have been a combination of two inside jokes, and nobody would have got it. So... Um, Two Bobs is a reference to a cult movie called Office Space. And um, in the movie Office Space, the um, the hero company, who's also the villain, I guess, hires two consultants, and they're both named Bob. 
And so David Baker and I, serving the same audience that we do, we've had situations where we've both been working with a client, if not at the same time, then one after another. And so we would start to get these two Bob's references from our clients. Ah, the second Bob is here. Um, so we just kind of ran with it. And so between two Bobs, we'd, you know, Zach Galifianakis has this show between two ferns. We were thinking of between two Bobs. But then, you know, at some point, the jokes are just for you and nobody understands it. So that's yeah, I, where two Bobs I, comes I from. just got the reference because I, now I connected the red stapler. It all makes sense now. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. So listen, Blair, for those who may not be familiar with your work, tell us, uh, tell us your backstory. Where did you come from? Yeah, so I grew up professionally in the advertising business, and then after 10 years or so, I went to work in the in, in another creative profession, the design business. I've been always on the business side of the business, not the creative side, so I was a, I was a suit. I worked in account management and new business development and um, eventually ran a satellite office for a couple of different firms. So my background comes from the creative professions. Um. And so I'm based in Canada. I've always worked in Canada, even though I worked for some of the world's largest advertising agencies. I worked for their Canadian offices. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, that's, that's kind of my professional career before I went solo and watched, launched Win Without Pitching, which originally was a consulting practice. But yeah, I grew up in the advertising and design professions. And so was Win Without Pitching, was that your, your first foray into independent consulting? It was. Yeah. And the impetus for it was um, it wasn't that I saw a need in the marketplace in particular. My own need was I needed to get out of the advertising business. I needed to get out. And I um, uh, Win Without Pitching is headquartered in a remote mountain village in the um, uh, in British Columbia. We're a short nine hour drive from Vancouver. Uh, a village on the shore of a 92-mile-long lake, a population of about 900 people. And I really uh, – my wife and I had discovered this little village years ago, and we really wanted to find a way to get here. And there was no – you know, the industries are logging and dope growing. And I, you know, I didn't have experience with either of those things. <clears throat> so um, I decided to launch a consulting business, and that consulting was Win Without Pitching. And so it was new sales and new business consulting uh, to independent creative firms. So, so not so much uh, a local business then, I guess, eh? <laughs> no, I mean, I don't have a potential client within hundreds of miles of where I am. Yeah. So, so tell me a little bit about that story from going, the, you know, the BD in the ad agency world, design world to running your own practice. What was that like? Yeah, well, it was great. I think I'm one of those people who always thought of himself as kind of a poor employee. I think I was always destined to be an entrepreneur. Um, uh, and I think probably a lot of your listeners would, would identify with that. So the transition was really easy. It was initially it was a lifestyle business because we, we moved to this village for quality of life reasons and we were raising a young family. We have four kids. The youngest is now 16. So they're, they're effectively raised. Um, but the transition was wonderful. It was, I was working from home. My office was in my house. My kids were around. I was spending time with them all the time. And then um, <clears throat> success started to come and the business grew and grew. And um, at some point, so we I launched the business in 2002. And in 2012, I had pushed the independent consultant model as far as I knew how to push it. In fact, I was... Um, 
in November of 2012, I was lying on my back in bed for two weeks with pneumonia. It was the fourth time I had been sick that year on three different continents and not, not, um, you know, nothing really debilitating, although pneumonia, you know, flattened me out for a while, but I didn't have any, some sort of chronic condition. I was just always, I was working too hard. I was pushing it too hard. And so as I was kind of laying there in bed, I thought I've got to change my business model before it kills me. And, um, it's in that moment, well, a few things came together that led me to move, I don't want to use the word pivot, but move from a solo consulting practice to a scaled up uh, training organization. And that's what Win Without Pitching is today. We're a sales training organization for creative professionals. So looking back over those 10 years, you go out on your own in 2002, 10 years later, you're lying in bed with pneumonia and you're coming to this realization. I'm assuming at that point, Revenue-wise, things are great. You're stretched thin. You can't handle the work anymore. What would you say were kind of the, the, the key learnings over the course of those 10 years where you went from presumably, you know, no book of business on day one to yeah. book solid and, and stress and overwhelmed 10 years later? Well, I, I think I've been pretty good, surprisingly good, and to, to the extent that I surprised myself at, at taking my own advice. And the first thing that I'm always talking to about my clients who have sales problems is the need to specialize because I don't know if it within your liter, listenership, this issue is as pervasive as it is in the creative professions, but in the creative professions, there are far too many me too businesses. And the reason for that is um, creativity, you know, somebody who is creative by nature is drawn to the new and the different. So they, um, they resist shaping their business in a strategic way where they say, here's an opportunity in the marketplace and I'm going to build the business that is better equipped for these very specific types of opportunities than anybody else. Um, they tend to think, excuse me, they tend to think, well, I'm a designer, I'm going to design for a living, or I've come out of the advertising profession, I'm going to start my own ad agency. And they end up building businesses that are almost exactly like everybody else. So the crux of, there's a, there's a, what we in the creative professions call a positioning problem. In the broader business world, you would call it a strategy problem. And at the heart of the problem is this idea that um, a creative individual's need for variety is directly at odds with his or hers business, the, the needs of their business to focus. So uh, one of the things that I did early on is I launched Win Without Pitching the Consulting Practice and I, very early people tried to pull me out of my area of focus, focus which was new business consulting for um, ad agencies and design firms. And they would say, well, this applies to these other markets, other professional firms, like your, your audience, uh, to law firms, to all these other types of businesses. And instead, in addition to new business, you could do these other things and other things. And if I would have, so as I was presented with all kinds of opportunities outside of my space, I would kind of judiciously choose the appropriate ones, but I avoided the big mistake that so many firms make. And that the big mistake would be just because I've taken on a, an, a consulting engagement in with a consulting company instead of a design firm, um, the mistake would be to broaden out my strategy or my positioning and say that I do sales and new business development for all professional firms. Like the truth is, I have worked with a lot of different professional firms and we have a lot of different professional firms in our in our training program, but our target and the, the people that I'm thinking about and then I'm writing about when I'm when I'm creating curriculum, when I'm creating content, are those folks in the creative professions that have specific peculiarities. So 
the business has afforded, you know, I'm fond of saying the target is smaller than the market. The target is that at which you aim and the market is the larger thing that you would be happy to hit. It's like aiming for the pin in a golf course and happy to hit the green. And most people get that backwards. They kind of cast this really broad net um, and then they try to <clears throat> build some specializations about out of all of the work that they do in this marketplace. So back to your question, I think the first key to my success is resisting the forces that tried to broaden out my business in the early days. And I stayed resolutely focused on those people who are at the center of my target market that is independent creative professionals. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, like you said, most people get it backwards. They go broad, general, and then eventually they specialize. But I almost feel like that's kind of a rite of passage because it's tough for somebody to do what you did right off the bat on day one to specialize, don't you think? Well, when you're starting out from scratch and you're building a business with very few resources, you you are a specialist. Like you, you, you get your first client, you're a specialist and you've got a discipline and a market, which are the two components of your specialism, right? It's I've got this client that does X for Y and you, you or sorry, you specialize in like doing X service for Y type of client. Like that's a, that's a specialization. If you, and if most consultants or professionals look back on how um, their practice or their firm was built, the very first client um, sees you as effectively a specialist. And usually the second and the third clients, they're very quite similar to your first clients. So, and then we have this like entrepreneurial reflexive response that says, oh, I don't want to be pigeonholed. So we actually seek to diversify, to broaden out our client base. And that's a big mistake. I'm fond of saying the pigeonholes are stuffed with cash. So I've seen that so many times where people are building this kind of specialist practice because that's the way it kind of naturally unfolds in the beginning, most of the time, not all of the time. And then they think that's a mistake and they want to diversify. And that's that's the mistake. And I'll paraphrase Warren Buffett, who's um, who has effectively said that um, diversification is for people who don't know what they're doing. Yeah, and we we got we got schooled on positioning and specialization from, from David Baker uh, in what would be last week's podcast. By the time this goes live, so we we right. heard we yeah, heard yeah. the pitch on pattern matching, which was probably the most the most elegant way I've ever heard uh, anyone describe the importance of positioning and specialization. So I can appreciate that. Uh, I want to fast forward now to today. Uh, you've just recently launched uh, a new book, your second book, I believe, called Pricing Creativity, A Guide to Profit Beyond the Billable Hour. Tell me the story behind this book. Why did you feel the need to write this and who was it for? Yeah, so uh, I felt the need to write it because I was a sales consultant for a decade before I um, a couple of incidents happened that made me realize I knew nothing about pricing. And so I endeavored to learn what it was that I didn't know. I ordered a bunch of books and I thought, well, I'll read these three or four books and then I'll be an expert in pricing. And I didn't realize that the, <laughs> the field of pricing is as, is as vast or as fascinating as it is. So I read all the literature and then a, a bunch of kind of peripheral content on um, you know, behavioral economics and even some other uh, micro and even macroeconomics. So I really went down a rabbit hole for three or four years learning about pricing. And um, I had a couple of stories, one in particular um, that made me realize I didn't know anything about it. I had a 
back, uh, I had a, um, a president of a, a pharma pharmaceutical advertising agency, an ad agency that specialized in pharma. And he was signing up for the early version of our program back in the early 2013. And I knew him because he'd attended a couple of seminars that I'd done before. He'd been an annual subscriber to our webcast series. Um, he and I had traded some emails. And so I'm on the phone with him, onboarding him into the program. And he said to me, you know, Blair, um, I've made a lot of money from your advice over the years. And I said, oh, that's great. And he said, no, 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 I've, I've made a lot of money from your advice. Like there was a story <laughs> to tell. And I went, oh, yeah, tell me. So he told me these stories of these multi-million dollar, multi-year pitches that he was able to derail, get the inside track and win these large engagements. And it just totaled up into the millions of, of – uh, and, and so he's telling me these stories and I, um, I was overcome with multiple thoughts and emotions. And one of them was um, – you know, he was clearly overstating my role in all of this. It's one thing to give advice. It's another thing to be able to act on that advice. So he was being very gracious there. Um, the second thought was I was really happy for him. But the over overriding feeling that I had was that's not fair <laughs> because I had I totaled up how much money he had paid me over the years. And it was only a few thousand dollars. And I thought that's not fair. You haven't paid me enough for you to be able to go and earn all this money with my advice. And I... It, while I was having the thought and the feeling, I, I knew it was ridiculous. So of course, it, it wasn't unfair um, because other clients had paid me um, many multiples of what he had paid me and uh, hadn't achieved the same success. So it just so after I was done with that conversation, I thought, OK, I really need to explore the ideas of value of pricing based on value and on the subject of fairness. So okay, that's the rabbit hole I went down. And it was that that. That was the impetus for me to learn. And so I learned, I wouldn't say I learned everything there was to learn, but I, I learned, I started applying these principles with my clients. And then one day a friend of mine said, well, you should write a book on this. And I said, ah, there's a lot of great books on pricing. And he said, yeah, but your clients aren't going to read those books. And I thought about it for a while and I thought he was right. I thought what's missing is um, the pricing book that's missing has two things. Number one, it's, it distills all of the theory, the pricing theory and the economic theory into as few principles as possible and then just tells you what to do. So that was the book that I wanted to write. And the second thing that I wanted to bring to this book, the second, I guess, perspective is I am first and foremost a sales trainer um, and it became obvious to me that there's this big gap between those who know the theories and principles of value-based pricing and those who are able to apply it. And I thought I, I was I knew where the gap is. I knew what, know where the shortcoming is. The shortcoming is that it's one thing to be able to learn the theory, but putting it into practice, those aren't pricing principles. Those are sales principles. Those are the where value-based pricing um, theory succeeds or fails is in the one-to-one -one conversation. So that's part of the perspective that I hope to bring to the topic. So I wanted a little bit of principles first and then just a bunch of rules, always do these things, and a whole bunch of tips for specific situation guidance. <clears throat> and I wanted woven throughout the book to be the human interaction stuff, the things you say, the way you deal with the client, how you have these meaningful value conversations. So that's what I was trying to do with pricing creativity.
Yeah, I mean, you've done a tremendous job. Before we jump into the rules, and that's what I want to talk about today with you, I, I mean, I feel like what I've got in my hands now, and I've only admittedly done like a, a high-level skim. I haven't done a thorough read, but I feel like I've got myself an applied pricing manual for professional yeah. firms that I know I can't get elsewhere. And and you do a really good job of paying homage to the, 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 the folks that you've kind of built upon, right, in terms of their work. But I know those are, they're valuable, but they're theoretical. If I want someone to tell me what to do, I pick up Blair's book. Yeah, thank you for that. That's really what I was striving to do. And it is in, it's available in three formats, but the, I wrote it as a manual. I wanted it to be a readable, enjoyable, manual, but also something that, you know, after you've read it once, the next time it came to price a proposal, you reached for your shelf, pulled it off the shelf, opened it up and and uh, flipped to the relevant section and actually worked, used it to build your proposal. So let's jump into the, the six rules of pricing. And I know you've got you've got principles, you've got rules, I thought rules we both agreed would be a good, good jump off point for today's conversation. I'm going to state the rule. Yeah. Have you give it a quick description and I'll have some follow up questions as we go. Sound good? Great. Yep. So rule number one, price the client, not the job. What does that mean? Yeah. And so as I was writing this book over a period of a couple of years, I spent a lot of time going back and forth on what the first rule would be. But that uh, I'm glad I settled on this one. So there's a quote in there from Ronald J. Baker, who is an author of and I probably learned the most from him on the subject of value based pricing. He's the author of a couple of great books on pricing. And he says that that, that is short, short of over just generally undercharging the, the most common mistake among the professions, uh, pricing mistake is to price the service or the job and not the client. So rule number one is always price the client. So this is rooted in one of the principles, and that is the subjective theory of value, the idea that value is like beauty is in the eye of the beholders, different people value different things differently, even at different times. So if we, if we believe in the subjective theory of value, that we all value things differently, <clears throat> then we should disabuse ourselves of the notion that the service that we have costs X. So in the book, I use the example of what, do, you know, what does a logo cost? Designers get that all the time. What do you charge for a logo? And the answer is usually, well, it's between X and Y, depends. And that's, the right answer is between X and Y, but as I explore in the book, you know, X and Y for logos are somewhere between $200 and a million dollars. In fact, it's probably somewhere between free and $5 million. And um, you, you should be basing that price if you're a designer and it's a logo, if you're a consultant and it's some sort of audit, whatever it is that you're selling, you're basing, you should be basing your price based on the value to the client, not on the inputs of your time and materials, not on the market value in air quotes of your deliverables, but in the value to the client. So if you buy into that theory that um, cl different clients should have different prices, are willing to pay more, and um, therefore you should be charging them more, then you will just let go of the fact that X, your service costs, Y dollars. So, uh, you if I ask you, uh, if I ask one of your clients, like, what do you charge for this type of consulting engagement or this type of audit or this type of campaign, whatever it is that they do, there shouldn't be an answer to it. The answer should be, well, it depends. Let me ask you a few questions. And then from those questions, and there's a framework that you use, and we'll get into that, um, 
then you should be able to determine what the value of you doing X for the client is, and then you can begin to put a price on it. So let me push back on this a little bit. You give the example in the book of designing a logo for General Motors versus, I think it was John Doe's Auto Shop or something, right? Yeah. And and how obviously you're not going to charge the same price for for those two clients. And if you did, you'd be a fool. Um, Or John Doe is a fool, one or the other, other, right? Um, But let's say I'm well positioned. I'm specialized. I know I work with the GMs of the world. I don't work with the John Doe's of the world. We're not even having that conversation. I work with the GMs of the world. I have a pretty clear offering. And I know based on my experience working with similar clients, it's worth X. Can I just come out and say it? Yeah. You're not going to go to jail. You're not going to burn in consultant hell. None of these bad things are going to happen. But what you are going to do is if you just, if you uh, you're going to make all kinds of assumptions about X. You're going to make, if you say my price is X, you're going to make assumptions about the clients, um, the real nature of their problem, what it is that they really want out of the engagement. You're going to make assumptions about the level of risk that they're willing to take on. You're going to make assumptions about how long it's going, how much time you're going to spend on this. Um, and you are going to forego as a result the right to extraordinary profits. And not only that, you will you will limit your own ability to innovate for the client and to uh, drive true innovation and, and value to your clients. And it's um, we'll get into it more, I think, when we talk about one of the subsequent rules around mastering the value conversation. But when you look at people who sell inputs or outputs and say, we charge, oh, you want that? The price is X. And you look at these people who are more entrepreneurial in not only the way they price their engagements, but the way they structure their engagements. Those people who are more entrepreneurial. They make way more money. They view every new client opportunity as a, as a real true blank slate of, well, let's let's find out what the client really wants here and let's just... Let's just not bring any uh, limiting ideas to bear too early about what I'm going to sell them. Let's just and, and let me use a blank slate of slate of paper, a blank piece of paper, to uh, craft the the most ideal engagement for this client to help them achieve whatever it is that they're proposing to achieve. Because when we, I know from personal experience, when we say, "Oh, yeah, you need X," I'll just reach behind me and grab X off the shelf and look at the price and say, well, the price for X is 10 grand. I used to do that in my consulting profession. I know that when you do that, you're you're just, you're limiting yourself and, and you're also limiting the, uh, the opportunity for true value creation for your client. Yeah. I know we're bumping up against rule number five here, but it sounds like what you're saying is almost that Stating a price like that up front without understanding the client's needs is a conversation killer. There are opportunities there, but you're not even going to find them if you just state that price up front. Yeah. And I, you know, one of the impetuses for me to move from um, from a training, from a consulting practice to a training business in, in, in early 2013, when I was lying there on my flat on my back in 2012, I thought at the time I was a solo consultant building about four, $400,000 a year. And I thought, well, this is the maximum. This is really the most a consultant can bill. And it's not true. It's nowhere near true. But at the time it was true because I wasn't value pricing my engagements. When somebody came to me and said, oh, I have this challenge, I would say, well, I can sell you A, B, or C, and the price is you know X, 2X, or 3X. Um, 
And we really should be doing that, but A, B, and C should not be preordained or prepackaged. You should really package up A, B, and C for each new client. And what I did instead is I said, well, I can do this thing in one day, I can do it in two days, I can do it in two days plus some remote support. And the prices are these three different prices. And so because I was selling X, that I, these standard, I was, I was essentially productizing what should have been a customized service. And I was doing it because it was easier for me to price. And in doing so, I very quickly ran into the limits of my business model. Now, I know solo consultants who work less hard than I was working on that, at that moment who clear in excess of a million dollars, working probably half as hard as I was working. So the, I didn't run into the limits of the independent consulting model, I ran into the limits of the productized service slash packaged pricing model. And that's what you do when you say the price for X is this. So I'm glad you went there because as you and I both know, productized services are all the rage. Everybody wants to launch a product yeah. or, or everyone wants to productize their service. But what you're saying is there is a ceiling you're going to hit with that model that you just won't hit when you go the customized service route. Yeah. So I talk about this in the book, but I went down this path of, I see a lot of professionals doing this. They end up uh, productizing or quasi productizing their services. And when it's not the right thing to do, uh, most professionals of any kind should see themselves as in the customized service business where you have a small number of clients, you churn through those clients at a healthy pace every year, maybe about a quarter or a third. Every new opportunity that comes to you, you see it as a blank slate, you let go of any ideas of what you should sell them or how much it should cost until you've had a proper value conversation. And then you look for entrepreneurial ways to create as much value as you possibly can for your clients and then get paid based on that value creation. The opposite end of the spectrum is you could scale up your business. You could pursue infinite scale, which is going to require you to productize it and say, well, we've got these four different products and here are the different prices of those products. So that's when I realized I was caught in the mushy middle, but I, sh I was, uh, I was kind, somewhat customized and somewhat productized, I realized I needed to pick one, one or the other. I needed to, to be a properly value-based uh, pricing consultant. So I don't mean consulting on pricing, but all of my consulting engagements should have been priced based on value. Each engagement should have looked, should have been looked nothing, well, not nothing, but should have been looked unique to that client and the value that the client wanted to create. And instead of doing that, I was just, pulling these things off the shelf. So if you want to pull these things off the shelf, that's fine. It's a completely different culture. It's a different organization. Um, you, so I decided based on where I live, I live, as I've said, in a little remote mountain village in the middle of nowhere. It was really hard for me to structure an engagement, a value priced engagement where I would say to my client, you know what, this is getting tricky. I'll be there in your office tomorrow or the day after tomorrow. Travel's just not that easy for me. So I decided to go the other way and build this training company. But if I lived in a large center, I almost certainly would have stayed as a consultant and I would have value priced my engagements. Excellent. So let's let's jump into rule number two, Blair, which is offer options. Why is it so important to put more than one option on the table? Yeah, when you put forward a, uh, a proposal with one option, 
it's essentially a take-it-or-leave-it proposal. There's two different choices that your client can make. One is positive and one is negative from your point of view. And you're asking the client's brain to answer a question it's not wired to answer. And that is, is this proposal worth, let's say it's $100,000, whatever the amount is on the proposal. Um, and um, the client can't answer that question without context. So to get context for that question, the question their, their brain is really, everybody's brain is wired to answer is, which of these is the best value? Because we can't subjectively perceive absolute value. And I prove that in the book through some clever images. I prove to you that I can make you think that black is white, that wet is uh, dry, that heavy is light, et cetera, et cetera. And I can do that if I can control the comparisons. So uh, when I'm putting, where anybody's putting forward a proposal to their client, if you, put, if you put forward the take it or leave it option, the client has to leave either physically or mentally to go find something against which to compare your proposal and, and decide which of these is the best, uh, the best value. Should, it, should I spend $100,000 with you or can I spend $90,000 with somebody else or should I spend you know, $50,000 doing something completely different? So your proposal should have three or four options and from now on I'll just – just take this example of three, because you you want to enable the client in that moment to be able to make the decision their brain is wired to make. And that is to answer the question, which of these is the best value? So if you do not present that scenario to the client and allow them, if you don't control the comparisons and give them something against which to compare your proposal, they have to go get something else. And that's where they go get three bids or you know, compare to other things, opportunity costs, et cetera. And you will see if you've never, or if, if you're not currently living by this rule, if you're, if you're presenting these take it or leave it proposals to your client, and then you make this one shift where you start to present three options, you will see the difference. You will see and hear the difference in, your, in the way the client engages. You will see them go to work uh, trying to arrive at the answer that they are – the question that they are actually equipped to answer. It's a night and day difference from the client side of the table. So, Blair, how do you, how do you come up with these three or four options in a proposal that's value-priced and not based on inputs? I can see if it's based on inputs, it'd be, you know, it'd be fairly straightforward. You get more inputs for the three different price points. But how do you do that when it's tied to value? Yeah, so that requires you having a proper value conversation, which is um, – which is rule number five, but let's let's if I may move us along, let's move to rule number three as a as a way of me beginning to answer that question. And rule number three is to anchor high. So your third option, or sorry, your most expensive of your three options is what's known as the anchor. And there's a lot of behavioral science around this, uh, uh, Nobel Prize winning science, um, <clears throat> that says when you lead with a really high price initially, the on average, the agreed upon price or the uh, is is likely to be higher. So another way of stating that is, when you're presenting three options to your client, lead with a really expensive one, and it that's known as the anchor. And remember this: the job of the anchor price is not to sell the anchor option. The job of the anchor price is to make the other prices seem more affordable. So. That's one way that you arrive at the, you know, uh, 
Well, one of the ways that you would arrive at an anchor price is just to ask yourself, what would we do if money were no object? What's the, what's the most that we could do for this client? Um, and let's just forget about anything the client may have said to us about what their budget limitations are, because whatever price you put on that, that's okay. The client's not, your expectation is the client isn't going to, isn't going to select it. They're going to select um, one of the other two options that are going to look far more favorable in comparison. So just to, you know, we may be blending rules two and three here a bit, but that makes sense. I think folks understand anchoring. You anchor high on the third option. What is this? What does the first option look like then? Where are you basing that on? Yeah. So let's say the third option, uh, third option, it's really that you lead with a high priced option. So let's think of that as the first option. And then the low priced option, I'll just generalize here. Generally speaking, think of it this way. Your lowest price option is the stated budget that you receive from the client. The highest price option is some anchor that you came up with. You just asked yourself, well, what's the most we could possibly do? What's our concierge level service? What would we do if money were no object? And then the middle option is the one that statistically is most likely to get selected. It leverages this principle known as extremeness aversion that says people avoid, when they have options, they avoid the extremes. Um, and they move towards the middle. So you would think of that middle option as, um, if you're thinking of the client's budget and the client's got a low budget for what they want to do, you would say in the low-priced option, well, here's what we can do for that price. And you would remove a bunch of value drivers. And then in the middle price, you would insert into the option, in the middle option, some of the value drivers that are most important to the client. And so that would be at a premium. So that's one way that you get a client to open up to um, spending more than their initially stated budget. So you show that, well, you know, we do have an option for you at your budget. Here's what we can do. And um, based on the value conversation, you've discerned that there's some, that option might be lacking a few things. There are things that the client really wants that aren't available in option one, but they're available in option two. And maybe the premium over option one, maybe it's only 15 or 20% higher. And um, I hesitate to offer percentages like that because there is no real science in a consultative service on a kind of when you're pricing uh, client by client following rule number one. There is no real kind of science or guidelines for how much higher than than the cheapest options should the middle option be. So what I'm hearing is that the, that first price that you mentioned, that sets the anchor and everything else is interpreted based on that anchor price. But if the client gives you their budget first, isn't that effectively an anchor? Yeah, it is. So you do have to be careful about that. And um this is actually quite a big topic. So a client might say, hey, before we go too far, I need to let you know that we have $50,000. And you could say, on hearing that, you could say, okay, well, um, unless for for reasons we won't get into here, if, unless it just doesn't make sense for you to be in the $50,000 engagement business, you would say, okay, well, when I do come back with some solutions, I'll make sure I have at least one option in that budget range, but I, I hope you'll allow me that if we, um, if we think of something really profound uh, that exceeds that, that uh, budget, I hope you'll allow me to share it with you. But don't worry, I will have something that meets that, that, that budget. So the, 
Is it an anchor? Yeah, it's an anchor. And ideally, you want to be the one who's dropping the first bit of pricing information and not the client. But you're not always that fortunate. So as a salesperson, then, do you advise against asking for the budget? No, I don't. Um, But there is a subtle nuance around how I think you should go about it. I think the first budget question is not what's the budget. The first budget question is, are funds allocated? Have you allocated funds for this project? Because if they have and there's a budget, you want to know. You want to know for a couple of reasons. Number one, somebody who is allocating budget is is actually clear. They're what I refer to as a late stage buyer. Uh, the allocation of people and funds is one of the last things to a project is one of the last steps people take before they decide to hire a firm like yours to help. So it shows that they are indeed a late stage, um, uh, a late stage opportunity. And then from there, if funds are allocated, you do want to find out what they are. Now, if you're dealing with, it gets a little bit tricky. If you're dealing with senior executives, executives are in charge of future value creation. Managers are in charge of managing processes, people, and budgets. So there is some kind of discernment that's required here. If I'm dealing with a middle manager and I'm striving to get to the executive beyond the middle manager, I might just avoid, I know there's a decision maker above this person that it's my job to get to. I might just avoid the budget conversation altogether because I know when I get to the executive, that person has the authority to bring more funds to bear. Whereas the person that I'm talking to in the moment, the manager does not. So I know we're coming up on time here, Blair, and I really want to get to rule number five, which is mastering the value conversation. But I still love rule number four. So I'm going to ask you to just (laughs) really, really quickly sum up rule number four and then we'll move on. Rule number four is say a price before you show a price. Yeah. And this doesn't come from the world of pricing. It comes from the world of sales. Um, So we've all been in sales situations, I think, where we're presenting what we would do to a prospective client. And maybe in the creative professions world, we're all hooked on the PowerPoint presentation. So the way it used to work in my career is I would stay up all night doing the deck. I would hand out the deck in the, in the big closing meeting. I would have my laptop and projector set up. And as I turned to slide number one on the screen behind me, I would hear everybody flip, 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 flip through the deck. And they were flipping to the last page because they didn't know what the price was and they wanted to know what the price was. And then every once in a while, you hear somebody go, ah, we we don't have $50,000. And you think, oh, God, I've worked so hard. (laughs) I've I've been up all night. I've built this big deck. Okay, well, how much do you have? Um, So I've been (laughs) in that situation personally. And I've talked to so many salespeople who are so frustrated by being in that situation. But you never have to be in that situation ever again in your entire career. Just simply never put yourself in a position where you're showing somebody a price where they don't already know what it is. So say a price before you show a price is one way to say it. Another way to say it is the client should always hear a price from you before they see it. Because if there's an objection to the price, then you want to hear it before you you go to work putting together some proposal. And in my world, proposals are only one page. We'll talk about that in a minute. But in the world I came from, proposals were 50, 100 pages long. And and we would put these decks together without having, you know, had the price conversation with the client. So that's a that's a rule that should apply to existing clients as well. Um, the client calls you and says, hey, I need X. Can you get me a price on it? You shouldn't 
or if they email you or text you, you shouldn't send that over in written communication. You should, if possible, pick up the phone and call and say, hey, I'm putting a price together for you. It's almost ready. I want you to know that it's coming in at you know $20,000. Because if there's an objection, you get a chance to hear hear it. Maybe you can overcome it. Maybe, you can, maybe you've misunderstood something, but you don't want to be in a position where your proposal does not get accepted because of a price objection. So you want to deal with all of those in advance. Now, that price that you're saying, is that the anchor price or are you presenting the range? Well, it depends on the scenario, like in an existing client situation where you might just price out something that's fairly rote for you to do, uh, you might just choose to give that one price. But as we move into the next rule of mastering the value conversation, there's a four-step framework, and the fourth step is to offer pricing guidance. So if you don't mind me just fast-forwarding into that fifth rule. Let's go there. Master the value conversation. Um, This is where value pricing theory breaks down. This is where if I've earned my money as an author, it's on this chapter um, and this rule, master the value conversation. And it breaks down because this is the human interaction part. So the framework is pretty simple. I'll just deliver it at a very high level. It's it's a four-step framework, and the first three steps are fairly common. And the first one I'll define is um, commit the client to their desired future state. So read back to the client what it is that they want from the engagement in other methodologies that might be known as uh, define the objectives. So commit the client to their desired future state, number one. Number two, decide on the metrics of success. How will we know when we've succeeded? What are the things that we will measure? Number three, determine the value of this to the client. So what's this worth to you, Mr. Client, if we accomplish all of these things? Um, so you add up the economic value. You can also add up the kind of emotional contributions to value, that really murky part of it. But let's just keep this conversation to the economics. And you you discover that if you help the client achieve this desired future state, you'll create a million dollars in profit, a recurring profit. Um, let's just say, for example, here. Then the fourth step goes back to our earlier rule, and that's to offer this idea of offering pricing guidance because at the end of the value conversation, you're going to retreat. You're going to put together a proposal with some options with a high anchor, and you're going to come back with that. But you, like I said, you don't want to be in this position where you come back and the client says, oh, we can't afford any of these three. So before you go away to assemble your options and your prices, it's your job to set some pricing guidance here. So you would say, okay, I understand everything we want to accomplish, the, what we would measure. I understand the value we're hoping to create. I'm going to go away and put together some different ways that we can help. And I'm going to come back with some options. And those options are going to be in the Y dollar to X dollar range. So you start with the high number, high end of the range to the low end of the range. And then you shut up and say nothing. Because in the silence that follows, you'll get so much information, so much guidance from the client. So if, and we can talk about, well, how do you arrive at Y and how do you arrive at X? And there's no science there, it's art. X, the low price, might be the client's already stated budget. And Y might be, Y almost certainly is, um, what you see as fair compensation for yourself for helping the client to achieve all of these things. Right, so it's the theoretical maximum that you think you should be paid for helping the client achieve their desired future state. So you lay out this range of, from so let's say it's um, 
it's a million dollars. I'm proposing to create a million dollars in recurring value for you. I might say I'm going to bring back some solutions that are in the $400,000 range on the high end to you said your budget's around a hundred. I'll make sure we have at least one option in the hundred. So 400 to $100,000 range. You mentioned here in this section, and I, and I noticed this in every one of the four conversations. I know we haven't talked about that on this interview, but you'll have to buy the book to get this, to get the, the four conversations. You mentioned in all of them while maintaining the practitioner position. What do you mean yeah. by that? Well, that is in, in our training program, Win Without Pitching, we have a big focus on selling not from the vendor position, but from the expert practitioner position. So everybody listening to this podcast, they know what it feels like to be in a sales situation where you're seen as a vendor, you're seen as having many direct substitutes, alter- the client has alternatives to hiring you. Um, and you can feel that it feels, you can feel it through uh, a lack of power in the relationship. And that's where the source of the client's power is the availability of substitutes. So that's what it feels to sell like the vendor position where the client says, all right, we, you know, here's the RFP. Here's what we want from you. Here's what you need to get to us to get, get to us to be able to get to the next level in our procurement process. At the other end of the spectrum is the, uh, where the client kind of defers to you in the sale and looks to you to suggest a next step or is inclined to follow your next step if you suggest a next step in the sale. And the moment um, the moment that happens, the moment you go in the client's mind from vendor to expert practitioner, we refer to that as the flip. And I think everybody listening to this can probably remember some specific situations when the flip happens. So you might be in a face-to-face or a web meeting with uh, two or three different members of the client decision-making team, and they're sitting there, arms crossed at first, and they're asking the questions of you or telling you how things are going to work. And then at some point, usually through the intelligence of your own questions, they kind of look at each other, right? They give them, one gives the other a sideways glance, or somebody finally opens up her notebook and starts taking notes. The tone changes, all right, so that moment is known as the flip. And once that happens, that happens, ideally it happens in what we consider to be the first of four conversations in the sale, the probative conversation. Then in all of the subsequent conversations, of which the value conversation is one, it's your job to maintain that expert high ground because I'm, I'm pretty adamant that it's not just your job as the salesperson in your organization, whether you're the principal or a solopreneur or a dedicated sales employee, it's not just your job to close the business. It's to close the opportunity in front of you. It's your job to close that business at high profit margin with a low cost of sale and with you and the organization positioned to be able to do your best work. And to be able to do your best work as a professional, as some sort of outside advisor, you need to be allowed to lead. If you cannot lead in the sale, if you're not allowed to lead in the sale, it's highly unlikely that you will be invited to lead in the engagement once you're hired. So in that way, the sale is the sample. And throughout the sale, therefore, you should be endeavoring to obtain first that expert practitioner position, moving away from vendor, and then maintain it throughout the sale. 
And I, I love your point in the book about how that first conversation, the probative conversation, should ideally be conducted through thought leadership. And we were talking earlier before we went uh, we went live today for the interview that I, I closed the deal this morning. And, uh, and you know, here's an example of, of a guy who he'd read all my stuff. He'd listened to the podcast. He'd taken my free video course. I had no idea what he wanted going into the call. We have the call. And I'm expecting to do, you know, a little bit of salesmanship, right, as, as we do. Yeah. Uh, but it's, hey, here's what I need. You're the guy. How does it work? Different yeah. conversation altogether right off the bat. Yeah. So, the, you know, if that's you're going right into a closing conversation and in, in most sales, we see the closing conversation. The final conversation is the one where, like, we're putting all of the chips on it. It's where... We, we build all the pressure up into this moment, and that only happens when you've handled any of the pre previous three conversations poorly. Um, and the probative conversation, as you point out, Ahmad, it's like one of the vital ones, right? You're, the flips happen. You're the expert. The guy calls you up and says, okay, let's do this. How does it work? Like that, that, <laughs> that's, that's when the closing conversation really is just a transition conversation. You're just seamlessly transitioning from the sale to the engagement. Yeah. And if only every conversation went that way, but one can, one can hope yeah. and pray, right? <laughs> yeah. It's nice to have a benchmark though. So I know we got a couple of minutes left. Let's quickly go over rule number six, which is limit unpaid proposals to one page. I think I can speak on behalf of everyone listening to this. When I say, Blair, have you lost your mind? <laughs> <laughs> I used to say uh, the proposal is the words that come out of your mouth. The document is the contract. And in my world, you know, all my clients would conflate the two of them. They'd combine these two things, this, this uh, proposal of here's what we would do for you, here's how long it would take, and here's how much it would cost, and then the place to sign. And then they would add in all this like pitch, all this sales stuff, sales language, and then information about us and et cetera, et cetera. And then one day, many years ago now, somebody made the point to me that you don't actually need any of that. You're just doing that out of habit. So if, if, you're, if you're in one of these conversations, let's just imagine that, that opportunity that you closed this morning. If, if everything went well and the guy said, okay, you're, like, you're the guy, I'm doing this, let's do this, get me a proposal, the, the appropriate response would be, okay, here's what I propose to do, here's how long it'll take, here's how much, it, how much it'll cost. And if, if you want to proceed, I'll send over a, a very short contra contract for your signature. That, that's a proposal. And that, that only changed for me with the ad, you know, as I got into value-based pricing and I realized, well, if you're putting options forward, you actually need some sort of visual reference point. So imagine you're, you're combining all of these rules together. You're putting this, you're after your, um, you retreat from the value conversation, you assemble three different options at three different price points for the client, you reconvene for the closing conversation, and you say, all right, I've, uh, let me just recap your desired future state, let me recap uh, the metrics that we're going to use to gauge whether or not we're successful, let me recap the value we're going to try to create here, let me recap the pricing guidance I gave you. Now I have three different options within that range, let me start with the high one, and then the low one, and here's the middle one. That's, the, that's how simple the closing conversation should be. And it's, you think I'm crazy. And I, the person who, who um, first told me this years ago that, that you don't even need a written proposal, I thought she was crazy. I guarantee you this is a, look, this is a trans, 
transformational approach and what will transform is your own thinking because the only obstacles to one-page proposals this way are your um, mental obstacles. Just do it the first time, trust me, and see how that meeting goes. Can I have your permission to ask one more question? Yeah. How in the world do you get away with charging $320 for an ebook? <laughs> <laughs> well, the ebook's $100. So the, the anchor price, $320, is for all three formats. It's the ebook, it's the manual, and it's the, uh, is it five, three hours of video. So it's basically the book broken down into videos. Um, so that's $320. The manual, and ebook is one ninety nine, and the ebook is one hundred dollars. How do I get away with? It? I have I've had a couple people take to social media to say this is crazy. Well, one of the ways I get away with it is um, I offer a full money back guarantee. If you buy any of those options, and for any reason you're unhappy with the book, you don't you're not able to make more money or whatever reason, just send it back, and we'll give you your money back. That's one way to do it. Um, and the other w way I get away with charging that much money is. You just, you look at the, it's so easy to create economic value through pricing. And um, I've said publicly a bunch of times that I expect to create, to add $100 million a year of profit to the, to the organizations who buy this book collectively. I've kind of done the math on how many books we're going to sell, I think we're going to sell and the impact we're going to have. And I think conservatively... Uh, this book will create $100 million a year in excess profit. So I deserve a fair share of it. My goal is to earn a million dollars from this book. It's pretty clear that I'll do that. Um, and so if I've essentially value-priced a book on value-based pricing, and I think it's the first pricing book in the world that's priced based on the principles in the book. Well, I'll tell you, it's worth every penny, if not 10 to 100 times what the book costs. Blair, thanks so much for coming on the show. This has been incredibly insightful. And uh, we're going to drop links to the book and your website and all your social profiles in the show notes. But I really want to thank you for coming on. Oh, my pleasure. I'm uh, happy to do it. Hey, it's Ahmed here again. Before I let you go, there are two things I want you to do. The first is, if you like what you hear, go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes or Google Play by visiting forecast.fm and clicking on the relevant link. While you're at it, please do leave us a rating or a review because it helps more people discover the show. The second thing is I want you to grab my free course on the five P's of lead generation for professional services firms. Inside the course, you will get a step-by-step -step framework to help you generate a flood of new business for your firm. The course is 100% free of charge, and you can get immediate access at 5leadgen.com, and you can spell out five or use the number. Either one works. That's 5leadgen.com. Thanks for listening.